welcome to Ogilav Nanagus. Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologist Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody at www.storyarchaeology.com. Series 4, Rowing Around in Rama. Episode 10, Mungon and the Poets. Yoku, chief poet of Ireland, seethed furiously, shame diffusing his face into a red rage. To make a fool of him, to humiliate him in public, it was an unforgivable insult to a man of his status. But for a young man, hardly more than a child, to be the cause, the origin of his discomfiture, well, this was more than he could bear. And the youth who had done this thing to him was Mongorn, son to the King of Ulster. There was a strangeness, a knowingness about the lad, a sort of hidden wisdom, quiet and sharp as a sudden frost. It was whispered on the wind that Mongorn was not indeed the son of Fierkner, but fathered by Mananan himself. The child had been born to the Queen without doubt, but if the child were the get of the Sea Lord himself, then how could even the chief poet of Ireland stand against him? It was unjust. His face darkened again as the images of his humiliation rose unbidden before his eyes. The young clerics arguing the law of the stone markers. It had been a scene of such normalcy, of rightness. King Fechner on his progress around the provinces of Ireland, accompanied by his chief poet, all had been as it should be. A simple request for information, a question of law directed to him. Well, that was correct, that was right, that was how it should be. And he had answered their respectful queries. Not perhaps a full and thoughtful answer, but a law master's answer nonetheless. I do not remember all that. I should think the children of death raised them to build the city of Kuroi. And then the youths, these striplings, had dared to correct him to his face. Oh, no, no. These are the stones of a champion band. Three stones of a warrior band as well, they told him. Illan, son of Fergus, had his first victory here, and then Conal Kernock raised them for him. You know, as a custom of Ulster, wherever they perform their first act of valour, there they should raise such stones. Well, of course, you should know that. It's an Ulster story. And aren't you an Ulster man? And each youth had showed him a face of jeering pity. But the eyes that looked out of each face were the eyes of the boy Mongon. And Yoku knew with a certainty that he was behind this insult. Twice more he'd met with such insults. Twice more groups of grinning youths had flung his ignorance in his face. Oh, now we want to hear from Yoku what castle this is and who lived in it. Oh, so many build castles, he'd replied. I can't remember them all. Well, it was a good enough answer for the young and untrained. Oh, let him be, the boys had replied. He doesn't know. And they'd laughed in his face. Yet all the time it was Mongorn's eyes he could see, jeering at him, insulting in the pity. And then Fierkner, his king, had turned to him in condescending gentleness. Ah, we won't think the less of you just because of your lack of knowledge, he told him, smiling, a royal hand patting his shoulder. Yet it was Mongun's voice he had heard, Mongun's eyes laughing behind the assumed sympathy. And he knew that Mongun would never let him be, that the inspiration of Mananan was with the youth and not with him, 
poet of all Ireland. Yoku drew himself up to his full height, gazing out to sea, breathing the wind. He was still a poet. He could still see. He stared into the darkness, the sea wind cooling his face, draining away the shame. And then the inner vision came to him, the insight of what was to be. Oh, let Mongorm be what he was, the child of prophecy, the progeny of Mananan. But that was all he would be. The boy's closeness to the other world would be his undoing. He would never be truly of this world. His glory would be fleeting. He would bear no sons to carry his name, his blood, down through the circling years. He would return to Mananan forgotten. Well, if this was a curse, so be it. It was his curse, the curse of Yoku, chief poet of Ireland. So be it. Well, we're back after our winter break, uh, where we had our wonderful midwinter special. At least a I load of old cobblers. Yeah, yeah. No, I, it's taken us a little longer to get going this uh, January, but that's weather has. and all sorts of things. Yeah, we're going to blame external circumstances for this <laughs> one. But we are now ready to return to our forgotten hero, Mungon. Yeah, we first encountered him right back when we were exploring the Imrov Brahm. Yeah, and I was just saying when we were getting going here again, that was our very first kind of outing into the world of Imrama and one of the things about an Imrama is that you cannot predict your destination so here we are it's you know episode 10 of the series do you remember when we said there were only four of them I know yeah this and is here we are at episode 10 yeah <laughs> and uh, discovering all sorts of stuff I mean, oh yeah the island of the Mongol stories yeah. is a great one it really as is. was the Taig one yes exactly yeah. there have been some lovely islands well now Mongol back in Imrovban was prophesied as this wonder child who would be begotten by Mananon MacLear uh, onto a mortal woman. In his turn, become the King of Ulster. Exactly, yeah, and have this glorious reign yeah. and save all his people, blah, blah, blah. Well, last time when we were looking at the first stories of Mongol, we, we were talking about Mongol's birth and yeah. his marriage, weren't we? Well, especially the, the story of him and Dovlacha. There are two versions of that. There's the there short are. version and the expanded version. Yeah. Uh, but the essence of both, basically, is that Mananan gets to spend a bit of time with Fick and his wife and a chance opportunity to father the child, Mongol. Um, and he offers a bit of help with problems that the king had. And it's facing a dangerous enemy, some of whom are armed with venomous sheep, as you might recall. <laughs> that was all the Mouton Guru. Yes, it was it? the Mouton Guru. Yeah. Further on in that story, and you, know, you don't just get the venomous sheep, you also get Mungon on the point of swapping his wonderful wife for quite a good-looking herd of cows. Yeah, well, that's when he's grown up, I presume. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. yeah. Although he's promised to his wife, Dovlaka, on the, on day, the day they're born. They're both born on the same day. Yeah, yeah. But his wife, Dovlaka, oh, I think she's a great character. She is, yeah. And she sort of saves the day and it's a mm. very funny story. So that was the last episode, which was episode nine in the series. Mongol and his missus. Yeah, Mongol and his missus, of course. Um, so, yeah, so that's up there. If you need a little bit of a refresher, uh, go back and find that on And the this time, we're going to explore three more stories of Mongol. Yeah. These are the ones I've been looking forward to, in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and they concern Mongol's relationship with poets. Yeah. Now, the stories that we're going to be looking at today, we're going to be looking at one that's known really only as scale Mongol, a story, story of Mongol. Mongol yeah. yeah, so that's the first one that we're going to be looking at. Um, and then the next one that we're looking at is why Mungon was deprived yeah. of noble issue. Why he has no, has no genealogy. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. And that's part of what, uh, the story no you were telling at the beginning. Yeah. yeah. And then the last one is a story which is generally referred to as how it was inferred that Mungon was actually Finn McCovell. Kind of spoiler in the title. It is really. a bit, isn't it? <laughs> As 
as with uh, the shorter version of the conception of Mungon that we looked at last time, um, there is a very definite connection within Leverne the Hudra, L-U. Yeah. That's our earliest kind of Irish language native text. Um, it's dated quite precisely to sometime around 1106. Um, but again, it's quite clear some of the material is copied from an old Irish original, etc., etc., as, as we've talked about yeah, yeah, so often. Yeah. Um, but there is a very specific kind of set of Mungon stories. And uh, in the Leverna Hudra, as we said before, it's got Imrod Bran, but then it's almost immediately followed by the story of the conception of mm-hmm. Mungon, the short one that we looked at last time. Then the scale Mungon that we're mm-hmm. going to be looking at today and uh, how it was inferred that Mungon was in fact Finn. And this kind of collection, Mungon set, appears again in the Yellow Book of Lecan, mm-hmm. which is about 14th century. But in the Yellow Book of Lecan, we also get the story of why Mungon was deprived of noble mm-hmm. issue. So it's mm-hmm. kind of like a little addition um, to this commonly understood set of stories. Mm. So, so it implies that these stories will continue to be popular yeah. and continue to be known as a set. Oh, I think so, That certainly. it was definitely a collection of stories about the hero Mongol, yeah. of whom we virtually know nothing nowadays. I know. His name yeah. has almost been forgotten. Exactly. And yes, it was clearly so important to the collators of the manuscript materials yeah. that this, you couldn't do a literary manuscript without having this set, you know? Yeah. I gather that some of them were even used as, shall we say, training pieces. Well, there are certainly... We're going to talk about that next time. We will talk about that next time, that essentially from kind of poetic fragments um, which were used to either to demonstrate or to practice different metrical forms, that there is a few of those where they just refer to Mungon kind of out of hand because so we all know. We all know him, yes. Exactly. He's really well known. It was known as much then as maybe people might recognise um, Fionn's Day or exactly. you know, know yeah. the name, yeah. even if you don't, aren't familiar with the story. Yeah. So in the two stories that we're looking at today that come from LU, yeah. do they show any signs of early Irish language? Well, um, in the scale Mungon, which we're going to look at, First, anyway, the story of Mungon, or a story of Mungon. Um, there is a lovely quatrain that kind of mm. kicks the whole thing off. And um, it is a beautiful piece of, you know, metrical verse. Very nicely crafted. I think the metre is something like Renard. It's sort of six syllables per line with two in the last uh, word. It's perfect end rhyme. There's Akel, which is the end of line C with the middle of line D. Okay, yeah. You know, it, it's really beautifully done. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think that, that that's pretty good indication. Because um, the oldest language is always in the poetry, It always it? is, and that's what's uh, preserved. And also, as we've said so often before, kind of like the, the kernel around which the mm. stories grow. Mm. So, yeah, definitely in at the beginning of scale. So Mungon, there is some evidence that these stories belong to the same period yeah. as Imroth Bran, in a way. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, that's it's generally thought You'd of... You'd expect them to. You would. talking about Mongol. Exactly. And, you know, most of the kind of particularly story materials, I would mm. say, in... Um, a collection like Leven the Hudra, even though the manuscript is 1106, there's an awful lot of early Irish or old Irish within yeah. there, even though it's written in the Middle Irish period. Yeah, that's why I was asking. Yeah. yeah. So let's start with a story of Mungo. Yes, the scale of Mungo, and as it's listed mm. in the various manuscripts. Well, it opens with his, well, not with the poet that I was talking about in the opening story, no. Yaku. This is Fogel, yeah. his poet. And there they are at the stronghold and uh, hanging around one day when they uh, encounter a poor scholar. Mm. Now, this guy has decided he's obviously still in training, mm-hmm. and like most students, he hasn't got much of anything really. Exactly, yeah. Uh, he describes him as being dressed in sackcloth, which doesn't mean bits of sack, it's just no. a sort of drab, boring, exactly, very plain. spun cloth. Exactly, yeah. What in medieval times would have been called drab. Exactly. 
And uh, Mongon sort of decides he wants to test the young man mm. and to see what quality this student has. Mm. Now, the, the, the translation says that Mongon sets out to test his honesty mm. and his ability to follow instructions. Mm. But, of course, he's also... This is kind of a poet's test, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, this is a, a youngster who is in training yeah. to become a poet. And, of course, Mongon is you know, encountering this with his own chief poet. Tough for the student, isn't it? I know, it must be terrifying. there when suddenly the tomb of not only the king yeah. and the chief poet exactly. decide to go, let's test the student. I know, yeah. It's a student's nightmare, Absolutely, really, yeah, yeah. Some of them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the role of the king's poet is kind of central. It very much is. And uh, we have talked about this before, but it's always worth... We can worth keep talking about recapping. this. It's really important. Exactly. That, uh, and we were sort of thinking there isn't much of a modern equivalent. It's certainly not the poet laureate. This oh, is no, no. It's completely some sort of honorary position mm. that really just says, "Yep, we better have a poet." Yeah, yeah. Um, no, it's it's closer to something like grand vizier or possibly even sort of president and prime minister. Yeah, I think of it as he's the king's conscience. Yeah, but he's also the king's information storehouse. Yes, you know, he's his library. Yeah, exactly. And um, but um, and also his like a consulting lawyer almost. You yeah. know, the, so we. We've got him there as the library yeah. of information, yeah. the lawyer, yeah. and the conscience insofar as he's making sure that he keeps the king up to the mark. Oh, absolutely, that the king doesn't go too far off the path, because after all, as we saw back in Moitura, a poet can remove a king from the throne. Yeah, it's to do with that rightness, isn't it? Exactly, core? yeah, yeah. It's cord, but it's also the fear flath of one, which is so important, which is the truth of the king. We were talking about this a lot with Cormac and yeah, his yeah. ordeals and so on. It's absolutely central. The king's truth is is key and it it's very much that if the king gives a false judgment then the entire land suffers famine and drought and yeah, tragedy yeah. and invasion and all those kinds of things it really is very very central and it's the poet's job in some ways to ensure that the king is going to make good judgments based on his advice his knowledge of precedence his knowledge of uh, the legal maxims we've um, also forgotten his very important role as a diplomat oh yeah exactly that he could be sent off to speak for his king as we found so in the, mid the midwinter special with our yeah. Le leprechauns yeah that exactly he yeah, but it happens all the time the yeah. the chief poets can talk to each other like yeah. diplomats yeah away from their kings as it were yeah they, they often interact yeah well and they're able to cross borders and be protected usually you know in the system with the tuatha if you go into a strange tuatha you don't really have any, any status. Yeah, any Unless legal you're status. A poet. Poets, are, it's one of the things they're yeah. there to do. You can understand how later on this comes down to, I mean, the word druid is often used, mm, mm. and therefore when the power of the word has been, as it were, forgotten yeah. or reduced, yeah. as we saw when we looked at Cormac, exactly, yeah. uh, when power is handed back to yeah, the, the aristocracy, the, the aristocracy, yeah. the nobility, yeah. um, that it becomes merely, he becomes the king's magician. Yeah, yeah. And it, it just reminded how, it, you know, when you have the Arthur Merlin, which yeah. is one that most people are familiar with yeah. why Merlin is more than just the king's magician he yeah. doesn't always do what the king says yeah. he stands there as the king's conscience yeah. and he actually has something left yeah. of the role of the king's yeah. poet exactly, exactly. It, 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 I know we talk about this a lot mm. But it's so hard to get your head round because there's nothing similar today. Mm, mm. And yet it is so crucial to understanding, particularly in this episode, which is all about how Mungon interacts with the poet, you know, who a king is supposed to, in many ways, almost subordinate his own opinion to what the poet says. But 
what the poet says has no authority unless the king gives it authority. Mm. You know, so it's that very interdependent relationship. So when you are, end up with arguments between the king and his poet... It's very, very serious. And this is what we get here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, not in this one, in, yeah, in, yeah. in other stories today. Yeah. What I find interesting in this story is that, that it's Mongol and sending the student out on a test. It's not Fogel. Yeah. Um, I presume he must be the student's teacher. Well, yeah. I mean, Kunomara has a note to that effect, but since he's the chief poet... He's essentially also head of the university. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, I mean it's it's kind of like meeting the provost. It's rotten luck for the student. I know. Yeah, you sort of meet the provost and the president on just when you're trying to learn your lessons. And what's more, the president then turns around and sends you off on some mission. You know, yeah, absolutely terrifying. And the other thing is that it's um, Mongon uses poetry to send Stuart out. We exactly. Yeah, yeah, and that it's a it's a gorgeous little quatrain. and again, it's it's quite clear from this, even in the way that Mungon is the one who sends this poor student out, that he has the poetry himself. You kind mm. of wonder what what's his chief poet doing there, you know, if he is such a poet himself. Mm. Yeah, Mungon could do both jobs. Exactly. Point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is a little bit unfair on the poets around him, as we <laughs> saw in the opening story. Um, but there's an interesting little kind of linguistic note yeah. um, about when in the text it says how Mungon is going to see whether this student will be a good and truthful yeah. messenger. Um, and there's a term which Meyer didn't translate in Tavus, um, which I think is just in Tavus. Yeah. And uh, what Avus means, one sense of it, uh, in which it is some kind of hireling or servant, you know, someone of, um, it's unfree, essentially, yeah. and is subordinate. Yeah. But it sounds the same. It's it's sort of homophonic with a term Avus, which is a term for bad metre, um, particularly within the kind of metrical poetry yeah. which Mungon has just it's used. Perfect rhyme. It's imperfect rhyme. Now, in some um, contexts, it's just a name for a type of rhyme that's not perfect yeah, rhyme, yeah. but it can also have this implication of a metrical error. You know? Right, so he's going to see yeah. whether he can follow instructions yeah. and whether he can produce um, perfect rhyme yeah. or whether he's just uh, Avus. Yeah, exactly. Servant, yeah, yeah. One who can't do it properly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Well, he sort of tested him with a poem. Yeah. But now he gives him instructions. He does. He, what he actually wants him to do. Exactly. And uh, what he wants this uh, poor scholar to do is to ultimately go to Shi Lethadothna, so the fairy mound of Lethadothna. And he says that in Lethadothna is a precious stone that he wants the scholar to bring back yeah, for him. Him for Mungon, yeah. but he also says that he'll find a pound of white silver, Findaragad, there, um, which has 12 ounces in it, and that that the scholar can keep for himself. That's nice of him, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's sort of like his payment, yeah. you yeah. know, for, for um, doing this mission or quest. Um, but then he says what the route is that he must take to Lethadothna, and that is that first he goes to Knuck Bona, um, and then he will go to Dova Granard. Yeah, and then finally to this she Lethadosna, and uh, once he's got the stone and the the silver, then he has to go to the stream of Lethadosna, where Mungon has somehow hidden a pound of gold in which he says there are nine ounces, and that also is to be brought back for Mungon himself. Now, there's something I think which needs commenting on. Mm. I mean, twelve ounces and a pound of silver mm. and nine ounces and a pound of gold. Yeah, that <laughs> um, that isn't any measurement that. 
one recognises now? Well, no. I mean, you, you might recognise the spirit of thinking that there's less ounces in gold than in silver. But the term is unga, you know, which literally means an ounce and has the same linguistic root. But it's essentially like the, the unit of currency when you're dealing in metals. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we talked a, a long time ago about cows as a unit of currency. But there are some things, particularly when dealing with um, fines and payments for the highest levels, like mm-hmm. for kings and chief poets and so on, that um, their honour prices can be measured in metals. Mm-hmm. And so it's like the, the subdivision of uh, metal currency is unga. So it's it's like saying that there's 12 coins of silver and nine coins of gold or, or nuggets or, you know, something like yeah, that. Yeah. But it would be a recognisable amount. Exactly, yeah, yeah. You know, I still think what you've got is a sort of poetic teaching story mm. here. You know, all about metaphor and interpretation of metaphor. Yeah. You know, can the student recognise treasure from dross you know? yeah um can you pick out good poetry from bad poetry yeah yeah if inspiration is all otherworldly then this, can the Stuart recognize the nuggets of truth yeah in a poem can yes we, yeah i don't know uh, properly identify those sort things. Of parable i yeah i mean it does to me have a bit of a flavor of a sort of a zen parable you know which are all all stories about the master says to the student something either very obvious or very confusing, and then the student is, is an idiot. Exactly, oh, yeah, yeah. A reference to an old song, yeah. <laughs> you know, so, and then the, the student, through trying to answer this question, comes to some fundamental realisation about like the universe. Almost like a sort of uh, journey. Yeah, exactly, uh, exactly. A theoretical journey. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think it's there. Yeah, I think it's yeah. also there. But, you know, maybe we ought to actually explore what happens yes. and how well the student followed the instructions. Exactly. Well, it's pretty simple. It is. Goes first of all to the ferryman of Notbonia. There he meets a noble-looking couple, as mm. you would, mm-hmm. and they, of course, welcome the messenger of Mongol. Yeah. I mean, any messenger of Mongol yeah. is welcome here. Yeah. Um, same thing happens at the next site, yeah. Dover Granad. Yeah. And then the same thing at the final mound, which yeah. is his destination. Yeah. Well, now we find out what happens mm. at the last site, just by the house of the couple, or mm. whether it's the ferry mound or whatever. There's a marvelous chamber. Maybe that is the mound itself mm. by the side of the third house. And Mongol has told him to ask for the key. Well, that's what it says in the translation. Mm. But you've got some doubt about that, haven't you? Yeah. I mean, it kind of leapt out a bit because it, it says the scholar asked the couple for its key might be her key um, as Mungan had told him yeah. and yet we were given very detailed description of exactly what Mungan told him to do and this wasn't part of it yeah. and I was a little bit kind of dubious because the term is Ucher um, and Ucher has seven different entries in the yeah. dictionary of the Irish language in the primary sense it, it is a key but the thing is that that can be used in the same way that we use the term key in English. Mm-hmm. So it could be, you know, a code key. It could be a keystone or a cornerstone. You know, it keystone's could, interesting. Yeah, here. yeah. It could be a guide. But ochre also means edge or something with an edge on it. Sometimes it's like a, a sharpened spear edge. But if you remember all the way back to Othliac Find, mm-hmm. which is when we were looking at stories of Shinnan, that was the first episode. Um, in that, the, the weird triangular stone that is uh, the that big plug. As well, that it? was a, a, a treocher is what it was called. Three so it had three, three edges. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I was sort of wondering about this. That sounds like a keystone too, you know. Doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so... Yeah, I was kind of unsure. I was kind of wondering, well, is it rather than, as it was translated by Meyer, rather than asking for a key, is he asking for the stone? Or is he asking for directions to this um, aragal, which is 
um, the, the, the chamber. Yeah, and I keep getting this image of sending him off to a fairy mound. Mm. These are clearly meant to be fairy mounds. Yeah, yeah. Which are usually Neolithic Neolithic sites. sites. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, which are often either have stones mm. or are blocked by stones. Mm. Is he asking for the way in? Yeah. And were poets allowed to, as it were, was it their right to take things from the other world which mm. were forbidden to other people? Mm. Because there are plenty of, if you think, when these stories were written, there were more hordes probably around than there are now. Well, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm thinking here Bronze Age hordes, but yeah. often hidden in association mm. with Neolithic sites, or yeah. even just exploring the oddity yeah. of these sites. Exactly, yeah. I don't know, I'm just throwing, yeah. talking about a keystone. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And and also talking about being at a she, it's very specifically a she, which is usually a, a mound, um, and that there is this private chamber and that which is what an aragal is well, this feels like uh, i mean if you go into one of these prehistoric yeah. tumuluses mm. you know go into the cares yeah it's um yeah it's a dark and it's a very strange and mysterious yeah. place mm. and uh, they would have been as old then yeah as they are now exactly yeah yeah <laughs> as strange and as old and as mysterious yeah yeah um yeah it's you're going into the darkness of mm. the other world mm. and who knows maybe this is only the place of poets yeah 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 i don't know just thinking i know about it, it is it is an interesting one all right. especially when yeah. you gave me the word keystone yeah 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 there's there's definitely something in that i think so, well, anyway, yeah. the student opens the house. Yes. Or man. Takes out, what, this stone? Yes, this precious stone. That or the keystone or whatever. Mm. I don't know, it's yeah. weird. Yeah. Well, whatever stone it is or the item that Morgan's yeah. asked for and the silver that he's been promised is yes. also there. Yeah. Uh, and he takes nothing more, which implies there are, this is like sort of uh, something out of Harry Potter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Books, you know. <laughs> yeah. Out of the vault. Yeah. But he, it's as if there's more in the vault and he just takes the stone yeah. and he just takes the silver. Yeah. And then he returns the key to the couple or replaces the stone or mm. whatever. And then he sets out and finds the... It, the stream, stream with the gold, the gold in it. Yeah. And then he comes back, gives the gold to Mongon, keeps the silver, and that's all. Yeah. That's the story, I suppose, except for the contradiction. What contradiction? Well, you know, the one about the text says he gives the stone to Mongon along with the gold. Yeah. But if his stone is the key, then yeah. he's returned that to the couple. Yes, yeah. So now well, I'm confused. <laughs> Well, I, I think that what's going on is a bit of kind of wordplay. And, yeah. you know, that uh, this business of using the term ochre and introducing that at the point where the student's in the she mound. So the listener is maybe unsure whether this is the ochre or whether it's the stone that has been yeah. referred to. But once the student has successfully gone and got the treasure, there's a disambiguation goes on. Yeah. It says um, de breath and ochre, which means he, he gives the key to the couple in the mound. Then it says, Dubreth and Lick, which is the stone. He brings the stone mm. back to Mungon. So, and there's this, the, because these two sentences, one after the other, they both have the same yeah. opening, the same verbal form. I think that's a deliberate kind of, now I'm telling you, there was a key that was different to the, lick, yeah, yeah. the stone that so Mungon asked I suppose for. it is a stone that opens the care. Yeah. But it is the stone from the cairn yeah, that the, he brings back to Mongol. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is a precious stone, but mm. it's just a stone. Yeah, exactly. Uh, which could have been the same type of stone, which is also a key. Yeah. Which is, again, it feels poetic. Yes, yeah. And yeah. if you think about it, nothing happens in I this know, story. I know, I know. Where's the, the student stone? sent out to get something, yeah. he gets it, it brings it back. The end. <laughs> And this is 
what makes me think that it is a teaching story. Yeah. It's finding. Can you recognise a stone from a stone? Yeah, yeah. Can you find the gold in the stream? Yeah. Because gold is found in streams, yeah, but yeah. not lumps of gold. Mm. That there is something obvious in the hidden. Yeah. And something hidden in the obvious. Mm, mm. Uh, which is, yeah, poetic is, parable. Yeah. Poetic metaphor. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, like you say, there's sort of, there's sort of no story because the student gets it all right. You know, he doesn't make a mistake, he doesn't say the wrong thing, he doesn't take more than he's asked for. Do you know what I mean? It's uh, yeah. he, he gets it all right and therefore there isn't much of a story. You know, it's... Yeah, it's it's in some ways, yeah, it reminds me of a very familiar European fairy tale type. Mm. I mean, you know, the fairy gifts. Yeah. Um, which is, type, I think, three or three, isn't it? Oh, I can't remember. I'd have <laughs> to knows? look it up. There are often three brothers or three sisters, mm. and only the younger one gets it right. Yeah. And, you know, and if he doesn't take anything extra or turn off the path or mm. say the wrong thing to the host, yeah. you know, usually the first two say the wrong thing exactly. or eat something yeah. or do something or silly. pocket, pocket they something They don't extra. follow the instructions. Exactly, yeah. But the last one... Gets, gets it, it right. right and gets the reward. Yeah, yeah. But here, there's no story. Mm. So I can't see that it, it has to be being told for a different purpose. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, things like that sort of sense of the disambiguation between look and ucker does mm. suggest, if you like, a, a poetic teaching story. I think you know? so. That, that it has to do with what the, the listener of the story understands by what's been said. And so, in a way, the listener has to be a poet in order to get the story. Yeah, because otherwise it's not, it's there's, no not story. So, there's nothing significant yeah. happening. So I suppose if we sum this up, it's mm. sort of demonstrating Mongorn's status, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, both in terms of his poetic qualification uh, for sending a, a poetry student out, um, but also his status kind of with the otherworldly yeah, inhabitants. It says, it's his due to take the gold. He's not stealing. He's He certainly isn't stealing. Yeah. There's no way. And, you know, the student is welcomed by yeah. all three couples in all three mounds. It takes them three days. It goes without a hitch. Um, but that that bit that Meyer translated as is, is his due, I put that as a fourth possibility of translation. That um, what I think it means is either, you know, he's just arrived at this uh, mound and meets the couple and it says, this is their place, this is their house, or it could refer to that uh, this is still part of Mungon's territory. I think that that makes more exactly, sense. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And so there is, there is, you know, entitlement there, but it's Mungon's entitlement or, you know that he can access this place mm-hmm. without it being... Um, without negotiation. Yeah, without trespass. Mm. Yeah, exactly. So it's still part of his kingdom, yeah. if you like. I do think there's also evidence for the story being a metaphor for the true poet's path. Yeah, I, I think that's in there all right. And yeah, it's done by being inserted into this kind of familiar fairy tale type. Yeah, yeah. Um, which, again, you'd expect to have the things going wrong, uh, which, in fact, we had in Wild Dune. If you yeah, remember the island yeah. with the cat and the pillars. Or the first brother takes the treasure. Exactly, but he's yeah. he's told definitely not to. Exactly, and he dies for his he's mistake. He's by an arrow of fire. Fiery arrow, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, again, is, you know, get it wrong, yeah. and you've no poem at all. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's a bit like that, except that this is a positive and not a negative example. Come to think of it, do you remember when we were talking about Maldun? Mm. We uh, talked about a theory mm. that the whole of Maldun was a, a metaphor for reading a, a for, script. Yeah, exactly, for kind of reading, practice and interpretation and so on. And yeah, I, would, I think that that kind of model could very usefully be used in a story of this type, where it doesn't seem to be, you know, a literary story where there's action and jeopardy and, you know, all the rest of it. 
Um, it does seem much more like um, the sort of the Zen parable or to... yeah, a metaphor for poets teaching. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah, for how we to understand poetry. So there's just one more thing mm. is that it's the journey that the student makes. Yeah. Which is actually not insignificant, is it? It's not. No, I mean, uh, there, there are some difficulties of identifying, particularly the, the ultimate destination of Sheila Sadosna. Well, let's start with not. Nakbana. Yeah. Now, um, when. Mungon is set as his stronghold, is said to be Rathmore, which is somewhere around Larnway. Yeah. yeah, so sort of northeast of uh, the island of Ireland. So Nukbana is around Clogher in it's a County Tyrone. Yeah. I was going to say that's going left. I don't mean that. <laughs> going west. west. Yeah, yeah. But it certainly is. I mean, in the the implication in describing the journey is that he's stayed overnight at each of these. It's also close to where um, the two giants of Not Many Hill. Yes. And yeah. there are cairns on the tops of hills. Mm. Yeah, I yeah. Think that's probably how it gets its name. Yeah, yeah. Um, I believe there's some carvings inside of mm. Not Many Hill. Mm. Now, one of those could be Nakona. I'm not sure exactly which hill that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But certainly, it's it's that area is yeah. where he goes for the first night and then Dove of Granard the, no, the is, grave mound of Granard there's this really important thing these lost fairy sites mm. in the Midlands you've got this whole story of Miver and Breleth and the destruction of Breleth mm. and yet there's nothing there mm, mm. as far as I know there's been no excavations on Breleth now mm. Granard is, is a lot known about that mm. there's a most impressive Mott yeah. and Bailey, which has now got the church on the mm. top of the hill. I was up there the other day and it's quite a height. Quite prominent, yeah. Well, especially because it's in the midst of Longford and the Midlands, which yeah. is very flat. So any yeah. little bump is very visible. And I know behind that you've got the remains of a medieval set- settlement. Mm. And down the road, of course, you've got Abbey Lara not yeah. far from there, yeah. which is a, a well-known medieval monastery. Yeah. You've got plenty of medieval mm. uh, things. You've also got quite a lot of folklore. Yeah. You've got a headless horseman, which is 18th century. Yeah. You've got a black dog that walks mm. the roads up there. Mm. But there is something else. Granite feels that it should have been an important place. Yeah. Mm. I need to do some more work for when we're going to be talking about Miver exactly. in a couple of episodes' time. Yeah, and, and an archaeologist friend of mine did say years ago that he was interested in doing a survey at Granard mm. because it had the features of yes, the royal does. crowning yeah, site. So it has the features of, you know, Roth Cron and mm. uh, Evan Macha, you know, the really big royal centres. Yeah, with the complex of Breleth, not far away. Exactly. I mean, it's a, it's a distance, but it's not a big yeah. distance. People always say, well, there's nothing in Longford. I know, yeah. There are so many. I think it's got some of the most important central mm. tales, mm. but for some reason they, they've got lost. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I agree. Uh, there's something at Granard. Yeah, yeah. And... Uh, I know of no prehistoric sites at Breleth, mm, mm. but just because they've not been excavated yeah. doesn't mean they're not there. Because exactly. There's not. I don't think the work's been done. Yeah. There's yeah. nothing that's standing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I maybe there are archaeologists. I need to get onto the OPW yes. and see if and various archaeologists mm. and see if I can find out more. But mm. that will be in two episodes time exactly yes we will come back to this one but that's why we're kind of excited that it has shown up here Granard is a significant distance I would say from from Clogher from the previous oh, it stop is. Uh, it's a very significant distance from Rathmore where they started from up in the northeast yeah. coast and it's very definitely outside of any area that could be considered Ulster you, you know, know? Is this and that's that significant Mongol's poetic territory mm. 
takes him further. Well, either that or that Granard is so important that it's worth making a huge detour just mm. to visit the site. Yeah, yeah. Or to take in the mm. understanding of this site. Yeah. There is a mystery here. There is, yeah. And it's one that's interested me. It's very tantalising, yeah. As for where this poor scholar goes from Granard, it's the final destination she let it us know, which has caused problems in terms of tracking it down. The closest I can get is that there are Two place names in Donegal, which are called Othan Moor and Othan Beck, right? Mm-hmm. Othan is obviously somebody's name, um, and Othna is possibly a genitive of that. Mm. Now, Lethod, it means kind of a, the width of something or an expanse. Mm. So she, Lethod Othna, could refer to a fairy mound that is within the expanse be- between or including uh, Othan Moor and Othan Beg. Okay. So that's the closest I can get to it, but it's not listed, it's not identified in the Onomasticon or anything like that. So, um, and as far as I know, I don't know whether anyone has worked since to find out where this is. If they have, please get in touch, we'd love to know. If it's Donegal, that's a pretty long distance. It's huge. I mean, if you think about that journey, it would take me a long distance by car. Yeah. And there certainly aren't any trains. No. (laughs) Not in Donegal. Well, not actually. Not in Granard either, I come to think of it. No. No buses, no trains. That, That one's a difficult it is yeah even even now. today yeah yeah so our poor scholar yeah. is actually you know it sounds like a really easy quest but he's been sent on a, a significant journey exactly yeah and i think if that, it's donegal we if it's that, donegal so. yeah i mean can't say for certain but certainly you know even clogher to granard is is quite a significant uh way to go in one day if this scholar isn't a bit knackered out by the time he gets back i wouldn't be surprised poor guy now we can get on with the second story yeah. it's also about the truth of the poet it is and this is the one that's known as Why Mungon Was Deprived of Noble Issue. Um, and this one starts with Mungon's earthly father, in fact, with yeah. Fiachna, when he was king of the of yeah, Ulster. So Mungon's quite young. And he, in fact, yeah. this one demonstrates his ability as a wonder child. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. And this is where you got your opening story from. Yeah, it so, comes from this. Yeah. So there's Fiachna, who is the Ulster king. And he invites Yahu Rig Agish. And Rig Agish, it sort of means poet king or scholar king. Mm-hmm. There are some historical figures or pseudo historical figures in the annals who are called something like Rig Agish when they're both a king and a chief poet. Yeah, it's interesting that Yahu's given this status. Exactly, here. yeah. And in some way, he is incredibly high status. And mm-hmm. so, which I think is why Fiachna has invited him to Ulster, mm-hmm. is to sort of rub off on that a bit. Fiachna invites Yahu because they're both Ulstermen, Mm -hmm. you know, that Yoku is originally from Ulster. So it's kind of like, you know, local boy made good. Let's invite him back to the hometown Mm -hmm. for a bit. Yoku's response, though, is to say, well, no, I daren't come anywhere near you because of your son, Mungon. Now, he praises Mungon and says that, you know, he's the cleverest and, you know, wittiest and quickest Mm -hmm. youngster in the country, that he's already got huge scholarship and huge knowledge. But that Mungon is bound to kind of turn against him, mm-hmm. the, the turn against Yahu, that in some ways he'll incite others against him as well. Mm. And that then Yahu will have no choice but to curse the child. Um, and then that will mean that he can't be friends with Fiatna anymore and it will all end in tears. So he better just come <laughs> nowhere near the whole shebang. It sounds complicated. Well, it's not really that complicated. I mean, this is about... As we were saying before, that relationship between poet and king and specifically about how a poet's satire can bring down a dynasty, yeah, you know. Yeah. And in some ways, Yoku is saying, look, I know this is going to happen. 
you know, and I don't want it to I happen. don't want it to happen, so I'd better just stay away. Yeah. And Fiegel kind of goes, oh, I'll make sure that Mongon behaves himself. Yeah, that's right. And finally, doesn't uh, Yoku says, well, he agrees to come and stay for a year. Exactly, yeah. Although, again, he, I don't think he's ever truly convinced. Uh, yeah. I think he's got that sense of inevitability and doom well, about it. He's right. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't seem to be a popular man with the younger set. No, no. I mean, in many ways, it is very much the younger generation um, who seem out to get him almost yeah. uh, and certainly out to make a fool of him and to show him up and that's the whole point of this story it really is yeah well it goes that one day Yoku was relating lore as mm-hmm. it was doing his job anyway yeah, giving forth now it's interesting the boys are going this is dreadful and they say to Mongan can't you do anything about him yeah. I mean can't you challenge the lying clown yeah well Barkluck is what they call him yes. yeah but it's not exactly a term of endearment oh no 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 <laughs> You know, the clod. Yeah. And Mongon just says, okay. Yeah. Good. He, he just says, ma, you know, granto, uh, which is exactly what he said in uh, the story of Mongon and Dove Laka. Um, when Mananon disguises himself as this tufted cleric and says to Mungon, you know, you really ought to go and avenge your father. Well, and Mungon goes, all right then. Yeah. Yeah. But it does imply that he has every intention of challenging the poet. And all he has to do is say, is say yep, right. and he can then do and it. And it's done, yeah, 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 yeah. And this is where the story gets really underway. Mm. I mean, Yoku goes off accompanying Fierkno on his royal circuit around Ireland, mm. you know, so he's out of his territory. Yeah, yeah. And then, as you were saying in the yeah. opening story, they encounter this group of young clerics who seem to be having a, a stand-up row in front of these six pillar stones and uh, they say oh Providence has been great to us it's brought us the, the chief poet of all Ireland Sammy, to answer all our questions yeah, yeah, yeah. Go on. so they ask him you know what are these stones and you know who raised them and you know why are they in this shape he says I imagine that it was you know the, the people of Deva and that they were building Carcanry Kuroi's castle they say oh no that's not it that's not it he goes well can you do any better then? What do you think And they can. Is? Exactly. they're local. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's all this bit about Colin Kernock. Yeah. Um, put them there, uh, supporting, what was it, Illand? Illand, yeah, the son of Fergus, when he yeah. had his first skirmish, Myers' sort of first prowess. Mm. Um, but the term is gasket, which is, you know, arming, really. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of like his, his first taking stones, to arms, yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, and that it was the custom of the men of Ulster to do such a thing when they had their army. To mark the yeah. moment at which... The, it's part of a sort of initiation. Yeah, I think really. so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that this is where he yeah. first um, took to arms. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And that uh, it does say as well that Colonel Carnock put them up because he was Illan's foster father. Mm-hmm. Now, Myron kind of mistranslated that, that he put them up because Illan was too young. But it's the, the term is Adzeb is in there. So, yeah, mm-hmm. he's the foster father, proudly marking where his foster son was armed. Yeah, well, obviously the lads aren't that impressed with the poet. Well, no, because as, you know, we've met Colin Kernock many times before, he's an Ulster character. Yeah. And so here's an Ulster story, and uh, the great poet of all Ireland, who is also an, an Ulster, Ulster man, man, doesn't know the story. That's pretty serious. That is, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it seems they've gone as far as Kerry. Yeah, I mean, if they're talking about, oh, these must have been people trying to build Cahirk and Ree, then, yeah, we're right down on the Dingle Peninsula in the Slevemish Mountains. And I find this interesting because, once again, they've started off in the northeast yeah. of the country. And there's, I've long felt that there's this strange axis between the northeast of the country and the southwest. Yeah. Um, for example, in the story of the making of Loch Ney, 
Yeah. Uh, they start off in the southwest of the country, and you know the horse that goes up and pees and opens up Loch Ney in uh, Ranka de Vries's wonderful translation. That's where they've gone. They've gone all the way from the southwest corner to the northeast corner. And then of course there's Brickrew as well. Brickrew also has that. You know, as does Mesca Olad, which yeah. is the drunken insanity of the Ulster heroes, which is really very insane mm. but yeah there seems to be this axis that goes southwest northeast yeah, and this connection again with between Cahullan and Caroy yes Ulster yeah and Kerry or yeah. Ulster and Munster part yeah. of Munster yeah but it's very specific parts it? it is so yeah. we've got you've got three examples without thinking too hard yeah yeah, yeah. exactly so there's there's something very interesting going on there um and I think that there we may find more of that as we go mm. along mm. just to ram the point home <laughs> Uh, to get back to the story, yeah. Yoku undergoes two more humiliations yeah. of a similar nature. They're both very interesting because they're both very similar. Mm. They reach some sort of rough. Yes, which Kunomar unfortunately translates castle, which yeah, the lime brings washed the castle. Yeah, but it's, it's, it could be a limestone rough. Yeah, either, you know. Yeah. So but, and they find some youths outside. Particularly, one of them says four purple clad youths. Yeah, and again, this is Kirkra status. It's isn't it, absolutely nobility. Kirkra is the colour mm. for the nobility, as it was in in Rome. And but again, they are nearly coming to blows in their quarrels. So. <laughs> but I mean, they say, okay, you're the chief poet. Who built who built the rough? Yeah. Um. You know, what's his history? What's mm. his story? Mm. And again, he goes, well, there's so many of them. I can't remember them all. Yeah, it's yeah. Just, what gets really bad now? And what didn't go into the opening story? Mm because it would have got too complicated the lads insult him in poetry yes. and that is what is so interesting it is and, and furthermore it's all about insult to injury in this uh, particular story the first one they come to this lime wrath they answer him with a couplet and it begins key and o it's a long long time since and it has to do with you know it's a long time since i was drinking mead in this beautiful green before the wrath you're such an idiot for not knowing this but in the third site, that has grown into a quatrain, which also starts key and o. It mm. is long mm. since. The last one is then named as Roth Imgut, and it talks about how this noblewoman Imgut was involved in the building of this mm. Roth. They're citing poetry at him. That really he ought to know. Yeah, so he's failed in terms of the Dinhianicus. Yeah. He's failed, but he's failed in, in terms of the poetry as exactly, well. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's pretty serious. If you're a Regagish, if you're a poet king or a scholar king, it seems like these are pretty basic parts of a poet's he's got a curriculum. Bit lazy. Yeah. I think so, yeah. And then of course it's this awful, seeming mild response of fierceness that just yeah. puts a cap on it. I... Ah, don't worry. No one thinks the worst of you just because you don't know. We still love you. I know, but the thing the thing is that that is incredibly disingenuous. Yeah. People do think the worst of you for not knowing things. Absolutely. I started wondering about whether whose side Fiekner's actually yeah, on. Yeah, that's what I was trying to imply yeah, yeah, in the story. opening story. Yeah. That in fact Fiekner and his son are in cahoots. I think so, yeah, yeah. And that's why when I said that he's, he's, he hears his voice yeah, yeah. and he sees his face, yeah. it's the father and I know they're not literal father and yeah. son but they have the same mannerisms. Exactly, yeah. One speaks for the other. Yeah, yeah. I'm absolutely sure, you yeah. know, they have conspired together yeah. and they've ruined his reputation. Oh, ruined absolutely. his reputation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And very publicly. They go home, the poet's seething with rage and shame. Yeah. He's convinced that Mongon is beside, behind the insults and he's yes. quite probably right. Well, he's probably right, but all Mongon has done is gone, ma, 
That's all he's done so yeah. far in this entire story. He's just sat there and went, all right then. But he goes and finds the boy yeah. with his companions. So yeah. he faces him down in front of his companions. Yeah. He tries to do the same thing. Mm. And, uh, you know, he says, that was you. And he goes, well, if you say it, so. Yeah, it, it, what he says is, you said it, not me. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and again, that's so interesting. He's letting this older, you know, high-status chief poet be his own undoing. Yeah. You know? But still the poet says, well, I can tell you one thing. Yeah. You will have no legitimate offspring yeah don't look at me and say you're going to start a dynasty because yeah. you're not i know i know and he says that all that will come of mungon are ech baklik which is horse baklaks serpent cast illegitimate yeah. offspring exactly or, i think yeah. it's probably is a uh what you call it a euphemism mm. for bastards you know mm. and no, no one who can inherit no one who will carry on the name mm. or the status yeah yeah so it's sort of like yeah it ends here and yeah, I couldn't help feeling that um, Yoku kind of got his wish. Mm-hmm. You know, he has written Mongon out of our current knowledge. Of yeah, our, that our just stories. it just amuses me yeah. that you know he says no one will remember you yeah. because you will not found a dynasty. Exactly. Yeah, and in fact, um, it's interesting that among all the sort of heroes of this status mm. he's the one who people know the least I know yeah yeah thank you Yoko <laughs> seems to me the whole point of this story is to say that no one can claim descent from Mongol yeah you know he's not going to be the father of a dynasty no. he's not going to be there in the genealogy exactly yeah and I mean when you look at the amount of our kind of legendary and mythological characters who do kind of feature as a progenitor Lou's one of the main ones Lou he? is a big one that mm. people can claim descent from even the doctor yeah. you know and some of his uh, offspring uh, do kind of feature as the founders of, of particular dynasties and of course in Tyke McCain mm. uh, stories we were looking at Part of where those stories evolve from is of Tyg's founding mm. of the Kiniacht mm. as his dynasty, you know. And one of the most important things is to talk about the genealogy. Exactly. The dynasties who yeah. will occupy, the, I think it's the Silver Fortress in the future. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it's exactly. very much about genealogy. Yeah, yeah, big but time. But this is making such a point that it, it is. isn't. I know, It yeah. makes me wonder if, if the whole thing is that Mongan is here to... He's sent to reconnect the worlds through poetry. Mm. That this is really is a poet story about a poet, yeah, yeah. rather than uh, although he's a king, yeah, and, just, and by the later stories, a big funny story, yeah, yeah. But in a, originally, mm. it was he was not designed to be this king figure, but no. a poet figure. No, he he's more of a kind of uh, originator for poetry and the teaching of poetry than he is for an aristocratic. Dynasty mm-hmm. of Descent, you know, which you would find with other so-called Cycle of Kings no, stories. It's, it's very interesting. Yeah. But there's another very important feature of this, um, which is a little bit kind of under the surface. You know, it's not just about bringing Yaku down a peg or two. It's about a sense of losing access to a body of knowledge, and particularly Dinyanicus, and uh, the ability to draw on both stories and poetry, to understand the places. And I find this very interesting because, on the one hand, it is similar to the the project that was Agalevna Shinorak, mm-hmm. which was about people who were in the culture of the book and book learning, realising that there was a dying generation who could still read the landscape. It's very much like the sort of the death of oral storytelling in this country, that, you know, they wanted to make a record of some sort of others' ability to read directly off the landscape. Um, 
while realising that by making a written record, they were already losing some of it. Yeah, this sense of that the stories are in the landscape. Exactly, Which is, yeah. is the king in the land a world. Yeah. It's nothing sort of mystical. Yeah, yeah. It's just that, you know, there's a steward of the king and the land. Yeah. If you can't read the stories yeah. in the landscape... Um, then you've no business being king. It mm. reminds me again, I've said this over and over again, mm. about the recording of the library of the Aboriginal. Yeah. Who record, they record in, in imagery. Images. Yeah. But here we have this, we can no longer do this, we're yeah. going to have to write it down. This ancient landscape full mm. of cairns and Neolithic sites, yeah. which were all important and mysterious. Mm. And I feel what we've got here, if this is happening much earlier than these stories, yeah, yeah. is part of this weird Iron Age... Well, the Iron Age weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where they, Which they we've were... talked about before. Yeah, There's that... not much of it. The yeah. record of the Iron Age. Mm, mm. I mean, we're not saying these stories are Iron Age, but they yeah. have that same feeling. Exactly. And that sense of uh, that we get with the few Iron Age kind we of about remains. First, first, second century AD. Yeah. Or well, first century, actually. Yeah. The, the very few bits of the archaeological record which seem to show a people who are living in a landscape that is mysterious to them and that they're trying to puzzle out and make some kind of sense of. And they're nostalgic about. Exactly, You know, yeah. I give us evidence there, the construction we've talked about mm. when we talked about Owen Mucker. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the and actual... Corley Arche- as well. Corley, the yeah. archaeological site mm. of uh, Navan Fort. Yeah, yeah. And how it was built in one go over 100 years mm. and then promptly divided up and then covered with earth and yeah. buried. And just, so it looked like a cairn. Exactly, yeah. But yeah. they knew what was underneath that yeah, one yeah. because they put They'd it made there. They made it there. <laughs> they made yeah. it themselves. So yeah. they created yeah. part of this landscape yeah. that they knew about. Exactly, yeah. I'm not putting that over very well, but then I think mm. most archaeologists and yeah. historians are equally slightly confused about what's going on. <laughs> I know, yeah, yeah. And I get the feeling that the people themselves were. Exactly, yeah. That they, they were yeah. making a stab at understanding this mysterious landscape that they could no longer read. I'm feeling nostalgic about it. Exactly, yeah. And uh, several people have written, historians have written about this sense of Iron Age nostalgia. Mm, mm, It is a really difficult subject to get any handle on. It is tricky, and it's something that we've kind of come at from several different angles, you know, over the the course of our conversations. I mean, we know these stories were written down much, much later. Yes. But they have this flavour about them, Exactly, yeah. And this point that, you know, the great king poet of all Ireland doesn't know these essential stories of place. But I don't think this is the same as we met in the Cormac stories, where the power of the poet is being deliberately dismantled and being given to the king. The flavour is something completely different. Exactly, and that was the other one that I was going to say, that on the one hand, this has that kind of Oglevnish-Shinoric attempt to record something unrecordable, but then on the other hand, you have this sense in those uh, tales of Cormac that we looked at, where they didn't want it anymore. It had become you know, it had become so, obscure, exactly, and, and therefore unknowable. meaningless and, and yeah. irrelevant. You know, and so there was this kind of deliberate moving away yeah. from that mysteriousness. And at that point, the poets become court magicians. Yes, yeah. That's, you know, that's they, when you they, get sort of Merlin the Wizard. Yeah, a medieval concept yeah. of the druid who can yeah. do magic, yeah. who waves a magic wand. Yeah. But that's that's when they've forgotten the power of the word. Yeah. This is a different process. It is, yeah, on. yeah, yeah. Well, what we have with this story is the savant child, if you like, or youngster, who's shaming an established master, who's sort of exposing him for having status without content. Yeah, well, before we go into the next story, mm. it strikes me that we, we ought to just mention the other character with whom Mongan has so much resonance. Yeah. And that's the Welsh Taliesin. Yeah. I can only go through it in brief. I yeah. might put a, 
an article of a comparison on the blog, maybe. Yeah. But he also has this other world birth. Mm. Now, there's this wonderful story of Caribbean and the young Wion and yeah. the magical battle, which yeah. uh, he gets his magic by mm. knocking over the cauldron. And yeah, he... it's sort of a burnt thumb as well. Oh, it, it is, yeah, yeah. as we'll see, and I think that becomes very relevant. Yeah. To cut a very long and great story short, mm. he turns into a grain of corn, mm-hmm. Caribbean turns into a hen, swallows him, and she becomes pregnant, and mm. the child that's born is the babe Taliesin, yeah. who she can't, he's so beautiful, she can't bear to get rid of him, so she puts him in a basket and then throws him in either the river or the sea, depending on what version. And of course, he ends up in a salmonware where Elfin, who's a prince, local prince, picks yes. him out and takes him home, calls him Radiant Brow. Yes, Taliesin, Radiant yeah. Brow. And um, they bring him up as their son. Mm. And the other thing is, is of course, Taliesin spouts poetry as a baby. Yes. In the cradle, which must have influenced that dream I had when my eldest son was born. <laughs> first night he was born I dreamt he was kidnapped by the international socialists which is another story but you know he ended up sitting up in the cradle and singing all the verses of the international yeah and they were so impressed they let him go yeah so there you are I must have been thinking about (laughs) well he's not the only one I mean there there is a sort of collection that you find in some of the Irish texts you know the three neonatal speeches Mm. in Ireland you know and it's not an uncommon thing exactly to do yeah especially ones who are then going to be wise or prophetic the story really gets going when Elfin goes to court and boasts to the king, Magun, king of Gwyneth, that he can do better than the king. He says he's got a wife who is more chaste than the queen. And uh, he's also got a bard who's more proficient than the king's bard, mm-hmm. who he means the child, Taliesin. Mm-hmm. And he also then later on says he's got a horse that can run faster than the king's horse. And of course, this leads yeah. to a competition. Now, this is where the story begins to remind me of Maka. Exactly, yeah. It's always a ja- dangerous thing to say, I've got yeah. a horse that can run faster than yours. Yeah. We know how that ends up. Yeah, well, this time it's a boy child. Mm. But um, eventually, of course, he's imprisoned and asked to prove it. And um, there's a really complicated story about how the king sends his son, who's never been known to be turned down by any woman, to test the elfin's wife. Mm -hmm. And uh, anyway, she won't have none of it, but swaps a serving maid. Oh, yeah. For herself. Mm. And some sort of trick. Yeah. So he thinks he's with the, with Elfin's wife and it's not yeah. a serving maid. But the nasty bit is that they cut off, he cuts off the maid's finger what? and presents that as a sign that he has been sleeping with Elfin's wife. So Elfin's wife turns out, it's not my finger. That's interesting because uh, we had that with Ethno Uthok. We did, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The little finger. There cover. are all sorts of connections. Yeah, so yeah. They, these go much deeper, but I don't think yeah. can handle no, no, all no. Of them. I'm trying to go through this yeah. quickly. <laughs> <laughs> but the interesting thing when he presents the finger at court Elfin mm. looks at this finger and he goes well that can't be my wife yeah. you can see there's um, there's flour under the fingernail <laughs> and my wife's certainly not been kneading kneading no. bread she's an aristocrat she's yes. a noble woman yeah. and uh, anyway so this, then, then there's this um, race which actually comes later the mm. race with the king's horse mm. and um, Taliesin tells uh, Elfin to hit the um the king's horses, 24 of them, mm. with um, a burnt holly stick. Mm. Now, there's all sorts of things this could mean, yeah, yeah. but I'm not sure what it does. And where Taliesin's horse finishes, the horse strikes the ground and mm. gold is found underneath the ground where the horse's yeah. goes. And then, of course, you get to the main part of the story, which mm. is the Battle of the Bards. Mm. And so he has to prove that the child is a better bard than the king's poets. Yes. Well, the interesting thing is that when the poets, the king's poets, try to speak, Taliesin doesn't do anything, but somehow, because of him, all they can do is go blur, blur, blur. They yeah. babble like babies. Mm. Whereas Taliesin spouts incredible poetry. Yes, yeah. And I can't remember where, but we want, of course, the well-known I Am. Mm. Yes, yes, of course. Comes in 
into one of those, a bit like the Son of Avakin. Exactly. Now, that's told extremely briefly, yes. and probably in a very muddled way, <laughs> but it's quite a long story, mm. and it's a major story. Yeah. But is this not effectively connected so closely to Mongol? Yeah, exactly, with what he's doing, again, by shaming, you know, the, yeah. the established figures and by, you know, being the wise child and like you said having this other world birth he's got another world mother mongan has another world father mm -hmm. their names are effectively the same well mm, similar similar i mean mongan means you know sort of hair or flowing hair and taliesin is a radiant brow but you it's know. this fair flowing hair yeah yeah it's a similar yeah. concept if you like they have in the pseudo genealogies they mm. do actually have similar dates yes I'm not making a big thing about yeah that. yeah yeah but taliesin is supposed to be late 6th century mm. and Mongon's death is recorded as 625 yeah yeah so yeah it's yeah, again it's, it's roughly equivalent rough, it's very rough yeah yeah I mean they're both referenced in early poetry mm. in later texts if you see what yes, I mean they have yes. that later texts which contain early poetry yeah, yeah. which is therefore attributed to Taliesin in mm. the Welsh and to Mongon in the Irish. Well, what we have with Mongon is that we have him as a subject of poetry. What we do have, though, are early poems that are attributed to Finn. And I think that what we're about to go on to a story yeah. about how Mongon and Finn are connected. Taliesin is connected with uh, Finn through Gwion. Exactly. The, the, the names Gwion, which was Taliesin's kind of first name, and Finn... Uh, they mean the same thing. They both mean fair. We're not sure which way the influence goes, but we'll get we'll get to the story that because first. we need yeah. to talk about the last story. Yeah. Well, our third story that we're looking at here is usually under the title "How It Was Inferred That Mungon Was Actually Finn," and what we have in this story is again Mungon with his chief poet Fergal. One day, Mungon asks Fergal. It's kind of to tell him the story of the death of. Fothad mm. Arachdech. It does say Adad Fothad Arachdech, which makes me think that that's a, an actual story because the Adad mm. are tale types. You know, so it's one of the the tale types that's got lot, or one of the examples yeah. of that type. So Mongon asks Fergal to tell him this story, but when Fergal does it, Mongon turns around and says, "Actually, no, that's not what happened," because Fergal has said that uh, Fothad Arachdech was slain in Dovthurlagian, Dovthur in Leinster. Mm. Um, now, Cunamara has a note suggesting that there's a Dovthur in the Dolnarida, which it would be Mongon's territory, mm -hmm. and that that was a source of confusion. There were many more Dovthurs, a lot mm -hmm. of which were in Leinster. But either way, Mungon has said that his chief poet is wrong. Fergal does not take this lightly. He threatens to satirise Mungon. So he, th he threatens to satirise the king. Mm -hmm. That's not enough. He threatens to uh, satirise the king's father and mother and grandfather. <laughs> and he says that he will, you know, chant over the woods so that they'll, they won't bear fruit and over the land so that nothing will grow and over the water so that they'll never catch fish. I mean, th this is, you know, an absolute collapse of fear flatterman mm, the, you know mm. the, the king's truth because the king has accused his chief poet of being wrong and so mungon does try to appease his poet he offers him kind of greater and greater recompense he offers him seven couples and then he says well, you can have twice seven couples or three times seven couples then you can have a third of my land you can have half my <laughs> land you know and then he says you can have anything except for Anything that limits my freedom and my wife's freedom and the kingdom. Yeah. So, but the only thing 
that Forgal is interested in is Mongon's wife or <laughs> oh, Mongon's woman. Yeah. So yeah, you know, it's it is just this absolutely huge shitstorm <laughs> that just comes out of Mongon saying that's wrong. And then Mongon, what he asks for three days' grace or something. Doesn't he, he does. Yeah, he he basically says, you know, I need three days to prove the truth I'm right. of my assertion yeah, yeah. because obviously you cannot satirize someone. It's again, if tr- truth, truth is a defense against mm. libel. Now, of course, we've talked about the legal process of satirisation before, and we've talked about how the first thing you do is give notice that you are going to satirise, and then there is a waiting period where you wait for the victim of the satire to make recompense. Mm. And so, yeah, Mungon, it seems as though he has to ask for three days' grace, but I think that it's it's understood that this is, you know, the first step in the process of legal satirisation. But it's it? now under getting, he's threatening to sue. Basically. He is, yeah, mm. absolutely. He says, I'll, I'll see you in court, mate. But you it know. does seem to escalate very fast. It does, it? it does. And particularly because, sort of immediately before this, the opening few lines are about how Fergal and Mungon are doing everything right. It yeah. says that, you know, there are every married couple in the land comes to them with problems and they solve them. It says that Fergal tells Mungon a story every night and that that will last from Samhain to Pialtana, so it'll last, you know, the full six months yeah. of the storytelling season, and also that Mungon is paying Fergal in sort of in jewels, shoda, and in food. So, you know, yeah. it's, it is a description of the right relationship and then between king and poet. it just collapses. It utterly collapses. Yeah. And this is the fear of problem. And it goes both ways. Yeah. You know, either... The, essentially, he says, the king has given a false judgment and therefore, you know, I, as the poet for the entire territory, am now within my rights to depose you. Yeah, and the, and the king is going, actually, you're wrong and I yeah, can prove it. I can prove it, exactly, yeah. yeah. And, of course, being Mongon, he can. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit unfair, but really. What I do find it interesting mm. is that the story's developing in a similar manner to previous Mongon mm. stories. You know, he's about to lose his wife again. He is. And it's interesting because the story particularly mentions that they gave judgments to married couples. Yeah, yeah. So you've got this constant reference to the relationship between a man and a woman. And yeah. The, 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 you know, the marital relationship yeah, yeah. is really important. Yeah, yeah. Um, mind you, of course, other world heroes generally have trouble hanging on to their wives. <laughs> they do, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean Coolan, Yeah, Kuroi loses Mither. his two Kuhulan, in fact, you know, yeah. Mither and Aideen, yeah. It does seem to be a bit of an issue for them. <laughs> you know, if you're other world, yeah, it's yeah. going to be a mid- bit more problematical than your average uh, yeah. living, living happily ever after. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and of course, you've got the contrast between the story of Mongon and Dovlaka, mm. but this time... Um, Mongon offers everything except his wife in yeah, his kingdom. Exactly. But it still won't do. I mean, again, it, it seems very specific. You know, if if we imagined this happening sometime after the story of Mongon and Dovlaka, it would seem as though he had learned something from the whole I love your wife, cows. His wife. <laughs> wow, you know, I think, yeah, I really like those cows. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I'll give you anything. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, his wife's got a different name here, hasn't she? Yeah, well, she doesn't necessarily mean it's not the same woman. Well, it says bro. Tigern, which means sort of noble flame. But one of the things I was wondering about is that Mungon's mother is Queen Tigern, which is gentle nobility. Mm-hmm. And here we've got a flame nobility. Flame of the nobility. Yeah. It's rather nice. Isn't it? Noble flame. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But the thing is that the term that is usually translated wife is just ben or manon, and that just means woman. 
and it's usually taken that when they say you know of then that it means his wife rather than his woman mm-hmm. and so I was wondering is this a sister rather than a wife yeah. now of course we have found in so many stories that it is perfectly acceptable for especially for a man to have more than one wife mm-hmm. you know but it did just make me wonder because the character is quite different you know mm. that the, the brotigern is she doesn't she's no dove lacquer is she no absolutely not she she kind of breaks down in tears every five minutes and it's mungon oh, who has to comfort her like, don't worry exactly. it'll be okay yeah in fact that's how it goes on yeah you know Three days they go, and all the time she's weeping away, and he yeah. says, "Don't worry, don't cry. Be right? Yeah. I'll sort it out." Yeah, yeah. He says, but, "Help is coming," is you know, yeah. is what he says. But by the on the third day, when mm. the poet turns up and goes, "Right, yeah," again, Myra says he begins to enforce his bond. But I think that. Um, the, the term used is nathem, and of course nathem, which it means literally a knot or a binding, mm. it can be a term for you know the the contract, the agreement, but of course it can also be a person. You can have a nathem surety. It's one of the kinds of legal enforcers. So I think he's employed an enforcer. Is right. what's happened there at the end of this third day. It's kind of adolescent, you know. isn't it? It is good legal practice, though. Yeah. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah, it is hideous, but we are talking about a king and a chief poet, so it, mm. it is serious. We yeah? are talking about the top of the tree. Exactly. An yeah. argument at the top of the tree. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, whether it's his sister or his wife, mm. they're in the bower, and mm-hmm. um, the woman's weeping and wailing as her surrender drew near. Yeah, yeah. Says, and she sees no help. But then Mungan starts to give specific. Yeah, so Mungan has said to her, you know, our, our help is on its way. I can hear it now in the Lavrina and the Lavrina seems to be a river that empties into Dingle Bay mm. so we're again we're right down in the southwest of the country then a couple of hours later uh, he says to her oh I can hear him now in the river I think it's Ma- it's either Man or Mween I'm not sure what the, the original spelling is which again is down southwest of the country but then it, it goes on and gives a really very detailed list of where this mysterious stranger is coming from and the progress and route that he's making. And he's making a trip across Ireland, once again, southwest to northeast, mm. going through the rivers, which I think is wonderful. It's almost that feeling, though, he's walking up the rivers. Exactly. He's actually mm. using the rivers like a road. There's yeah. nothing that says that. Yeah. But that's the feeling you get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, we can track most of um, his route. Um, this is some of the stuff that Kunamar tracked down. So, you know, he's there, he's come in Dingle Bay, um, and now he is going up around uh, Limerick, sort of North Kerry Limerick. Is that the Morning Star River? I it's now it's called, yeah, it's now Monday. called the Morning Star. It was called Savar in yeah. the text. And at some point there was a, a misapprehension that it was actually something like Kyvir or something like that, which means daybreak. So it became called Morning Star, but it's actually just Savar, which I think is around somewhere around the Limerick Kerry border. Then he's he goes through. Uh, he must before that go up Loch Lena because that's the Killarney Lakes yeah. um, that he's in. Um, he goes across to uh, the Shore, uh, which is one of the Three Sisters rivers down in the south of Ireland. He does also go through apparently the Nor and the Barrow, and they're known as the the Three Sisters, the North yeah, Barrow and the Shore. Yeah. Um, and so he goes up those, then he's up past the Barrow, up to the Boyne, yeah. then he's up through the Liffey, then he's up through the Newry River and uh, Carlingford Loch, Loch yeah. and then right the way up to bang in front of them there, Rathmore, the he is in the Larne River. 
finally. Yeah, he's finally reached yeah. And the atmosphere of the story is so striking yeah. as he tells the way this mysterious saviour is moving. Mm. I mean, you can almost feel the audience holding its breath. Yeah. You know, he's coming closer, his feet splashing in the burrow, yeah. the liffy, the boyne, yeah. closer, closer. It's really great story. It is, it's I gorgeous. Really love yeah, it. yeah, yeah. And then finally, the coming of the stranger himself is not an anticlimax, mm. not a disappointing. I mean, the way he's described, yeah. it, he's, I'm going to have to read this yeah. bit. His cloak was in a fold around him, and in his hand a headless spear shaft that was not small. And by that shaft he leapt across the three ramparts, <laughs> so that he landed in the middle of the enclosure, and thence into the middle of the palace, and thence between Mongon and the wall at his pillow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just wonderful. It First the river. Yeah. And now this leaping over the rampart. Well, the pole vaulting. <laughs> Which is, we, we've seen Cahullin and several other We did, yeah, that. yeah. This was very much like the approach of the heroes to Vlad's Vrikrin. Yeah. You know, to But then not only into the ramparts, yeah. but then into right the main into the middle of the parts house. of the house. Yeah, yeah. And then into the room. Yeah, exactly. Where he is, right by his bed. Yeah, exactly. And that, there is this uh, phrase of... Um, you know, between the fire and the wall, which yeah. is a way of saying the inside of a house, yeah. you know. And it says at his at his pillow. Again, we have to think of couches, I think, yes, rather yes, than beds and so on. But it does mean that he goes right up and he's right by Mongon's head. It's the closest he can get. Exactly, he yeah. He cannot be kept away from yeah. Mongon's side. Yeah, exactly. You know, he doesn't have to worry about doorkeepers mm-hmm. or <laughs> servants yeah. or anything. Yeah, he exactly. can get access directly. I think yeah. this is the most important thing. Absolutely, This yeah. is a really interesting hero yeah it certainly is it gets even better because the stranger informs the poet that it's Mongol who's right mm. and then he says something really interesting after all he says to Mongol you should know he were there Finn yeah and Finn goes and Mongol uh, mother goes shush <laughs> that isn't fair exactly yeah it's not good to say that Keep no it's, mm, it's more than that it's not strong. fair yeah he's saying oh that's not fair on the poet mm. you know it's yeah he's wrong yeah but he couldn't have known. Yeah, I mean, the the implication here is that Mungon, in some way, is really Finn, either having been reborn or is just still Finn, or it doesn't particularly matter in this story. But also that this mysterious stranger has kind of let the cat out of the bag with this. He, you know, he shouldn't have said this in public. But he's come to prove the words of the king. Exactly, he's but come, because he's yeah. right. And yeah. he says, you know, I will absolutely prove this to you there can be no doubt yeah well what the stranger tells him I think I'm going to read this from the translation because I think we need to be clear about what he actually says and it is very precise we were with Finn then he said we came from Scotland we met with Foth of Aragdeck on the Larn River but of course he's just said we met him in the Larn River that was the last bit of water that he just came up to the story so it's right there yeah. yeah And there we fought a battle. I made a cast at him so that the spear passed through him and went into the earth beyond him and left its iron head in the earth. And here is the shaft that was in that spear. So he's holding the headless spear because he's brought it with him to prove that this is the spear that killed him. Exactly. Uh, The bare stone from which I made that cast will be found and the iron head will be found in the earth and the tomb of Fothuk Aragdek will be found a little to the east of it. A stone chest is around him, there in the earth, and there upon the chest are his two bracelets of silver, his two arm rings, and his neck talk of silver, and by his tomb there is a stone pillar, and on the end of the pillar that is in the earth there is an inscription in Oum, and this is what it says. This is Jokad Aragdek, 
Quilcher slew me in the encounter against Fionn. Yeah. So he's now telling who he is. Exactly, yes, yeah, yeah. But it's so precise and it's so evidentiary, you know. That's why I wanted to make sure I read that. Exactly, yeah. I mean, even In spite down... of the fact of the problems I have saying character. It's tricky, it's tricky. But I mean, even down to the fact that there is an Ogham pillar commemorating the site, you know. And uh, it's interesting because what you've got there is a very good description of a, of a kissed burial. Isn't it? Burial. Yeah, that's what I thought. I thought that sounds really like a Bronze Age kissed, you yeah. know, where, where you would have someone in that a stone box almost. Uh, with you know? um, occasionally grave goods. With their grave goods, exactly. Interesting that it's silver, not gold. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously there was silver. Was yeah. just so you've as got this kissed, yeah. where you've got bracelets of silver, yeah. two arm rings, neck talk. Yeah. Um, you know, some sort of necklace mm-hmm. and uh, the pillar. Yeah, exactly. And, and what's I, more, the pillar has his name on it. <laughs> and I don't know whether anything of that kind be found there, but the the elements of that yeah. can be found. Oh, absolutely. There's the bombshell. Yeah. Not only is Mongan actually Finn, mm. but this stranger is Quilcher. Yes. You know that here is two of the great heroes of the Finnyok here yeah. in front of him. Yeah. Um. You know, so it's Finn's own foster son. Yeah. That has come to prove the truth of the king. Yeah. Yeah. Finn doesn't want it known that yeah. Mongan is actually Finn. To add to this, of course, they follow Quilter, as he now is known to be, to the site and they find everything very precisely as he said it would be. Um, and one thing I find interesting about this is that here again we're looking at physical evidence. You know, we've talked about this with some of the Imrava mm, in terms of mm. bringing back physical evidence. Right, the two and a half ounces of silver. Exactly, was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then there's also what we found with the story of Cormac and his sword, where the dead thing overswears the living thing. Oh, yeah. So that someone of very high status, the chief poet, who is essentially of equal status to the king, um, has you know, made a statement and defended it as true. But here we have an inanimate object, a Maravdil, that actually proves him wrong. You know, so not only is it very serious for the poet to satirise the king, it's equally serious for the poet to be completely shown to be wrong. I can't remember when we were talking about Cormac's sword. Mm. Did we sort of make the point that maybe the written word Mm. is becoming important more important than the spoken word? And yet here we may, I'm not sure, because Mm. this doesn't, that that doesn't imply that. No, it doesn't. When we were doing that podcast Mm. episode, we may have, we were sort of thinking, oh, there, Mm. maybe this is a sign that things are changing. Mm. But this takes it back yeah. Much earlier, yeah, yeah, in the sense of the stories, yeah, yeah, that that uh, immovable rock, yeah, was always there, exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah the evidence. But, so even though the magic of the word, yes, it still has to be evidence based. Oh yeah, I mean this is much more like they do an archaeological dig and find out that they're telling the truth. You know, in in the Cormac case, it was specifically about the writing and that you know even though it had been put there to try and mislead people that it still had legal standing yeah i don't think we're know? contradicting ourselves no, no no i just wanted to run it through yeah i exactly. do remember yeah saying that and it making it the opposite point well of course within the context but of that whole story of, of story, cormac and yeah. the or the ordeals or the fear of Lathavun and the the way it had become very mysterious and kind of divinatory or yeah, you know yeah. and that here it's something very different it very is about solid. Very solid. It's about saying, again, I think we've got someone who can read the landscape and saying, you know, I'm so certain that this is what the landscape tells me that I can tell you exactly what you're going to find in there, Mm. you know, Mm. which is why it feels so archaeological. You know, it's sort of like someone looking at a site and goes... 
that's going to be a Bronze Age kist. Um, you're going to find probably one individual buried there and hopefully some of their grave goods as well. And yet and, it's... Oh, look, here's an Owen pillar and it's got somebody's name on it. And yet it's not archaeological. No, it's not. You know, I think it's... We're not suggesting that uh, no, it's no, no. solid, but it's not looking at it in that style at all. Yeah, It's yeah. looking at it... This is the landscape... Yeah. With its stories. Exactly, yeah. yeah, And it's Dintianicus. Yeah, yeah. We know the type of person who's going to be here. Exactly, And we yeah. have the stories yeah. for them. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's just, I know it's a very subtle point to make. It is, yeah. But it's not archaeology. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's not archaeology, but it's as reliable as archaeology. Oh, yeah. That yeah. The ability to read the story yeah. straight yeah. off the land for the pre-written society is as solid yeah, as we yeah, now just consider archaeology. That a modern archaeologist would mm. have, talking to Mongorn, yeah. they would have had a very different viewpoint. Yes. <laughs> Why do you think this connection between Mongorn and, and Fend was needed? Because it yeah. does feel as though it's been decided that yeah. it has to be the same. Yeah, yeah, it is a curious one. In some ways, it feels like a euhemorization of Finn, because when he is kind of placed in the pseudo-history... Yeah, Mongorn has a place... Not just in the cycle of kings, but in actual annals, he's given these yeah. dates. Um, I mean, Finn is kind of a further he, back. Yeah, he's sort of generally placed at the time of Cormac MacArthur, who yeah. was kind of legendary anyway. He was, but also that Cormac, as we saw when we were looking at his stories, yeah. is very firmly pre-Christian. Yes, you know, and so I think there might be something of that kind of border to straddle as well you know that one of the reasons why Mungon can kind of get away with being half otherworld is because actually he's part Finn he's he part belongs Finn, to so. that older time exactly yeah, yeah yeah it's kind of going both ways in terms of euhemorization it's euhemorizing on the one hand uh, but it's also making legendary mm. on the other and then of course with Mongol we're also like Lou and Fionn yeah. Finn they've all got magical gifts courtesy of Malinan yeah yeah uh, who hasn't? I know, yeah. <laughs> At least Mongol, though, can claim a bit of parentage, you know, yeah. which is more than some of the others. It's probably all magical gifts of Miller. Oh, that's my theory. Yes, anyway. yes. Well, well, we'll definitely be going it's back to that theory. one. I think probably more importantly, that they have a very strong connection through poetry. Yeah. Now, I, I sort of said in passing before that we have poems in, you know, our record that are directly attributed to Finn yeah, as a poet. definitely the great poet. Yeah. I mean, there's even the Dunera Finn, which yeah. is a collection of his poetry as there's know. a collection of the, the, the book of Talies exactly yeah, of, yeah which is a collection of poems mostly but not all attributed to the bard there isn't as much verse that is sort of this is written by Mungon yeah. um, except within these stories but he's certainly crucial to the practice of poetry mm. and to poets themselves we'll see more of that next time yeah and then there's obviously Find is po poetically inspired through the story of the salmon bake. Yes, yeah, yeah, the story that's so well known in this country. Hugely um, well known. Yeah, you that... think there was not another Finn story? I know, yeah. <laughs> that he catches the salmon of knowledge. Cooks it, yeah, yeah. And cooks it for his master. <laughs> We've then... fallen asleep while telling this story. <laughs> and a blister comes up and he pushes down with his thumb yeah, yeah. and sucks his thumb and that's where he gets his extemporisation brilliance yeah. from and then of course you can see the connection with the young Taliesin in its first incarnation as Gwion Bar yeah um, and of course the names are cognate Finn and Gwion yeah, are the same word said. and he gets his poetic inspiration as you said the ability to extemporise mm. which Taliesin shows the moment he's, he's born, brought yeah. out of the salmon weir yeah and he gets it from the drops from Cridwin's cauldron yeah. etc yeah um, I suppose if we were going to try and sum it up we go <laughs> therefore Gwion equivalates to 
Fionn or mm. Finn. Yeah. I, I tend to say Fionn, but it's it, it, it doesn't matter. Either way, one, one is old, same. one is modern Irish. I know, and I've just yeah. got used to it. Yeah. Uh, Guion is equivalent of Taliesin. Mm-hmm. Taliesin equals Mongol, and Mongol equals Finn. Yeah, I mean it's. <sighs> very simplistic it is but it's it there is something of that nature going on i mean there are very strong resonances uh, there really are and parallels kind of going every which way i mean one of the things being that you know there's a story of gwyn bach but then there's stories of taliesin and it's within the stories of taliesin that he is connected to gwyn bach in the same way that we have stories of Mungon, and then there's one that implies that he's also Finn. So it's kind of like this retrospective mm-hmm. um, connection between someone who feels almost historical, who they've given dates to, yeah. and then someone who they are connected to. And, and then, of course, it gets even more, because in poems from the Book of Taliesin, mm. you've got, he becomes a bard at the court of King Arthur. Yeah, yeah. So he's really mainstream by yeah, that. Yeah, and yeah. that's the one on the spoils of Anona, which is a great sort of you know, like yeah. arrowing of the other world. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, and then, of course, we've got a rudimentary story mm. of the death of Mongols. Yeah, we've got fragments of it. Um, but doesn't that also reference... It, there's connections. They might connect to things like Arthur. There's definitely a dragon involved. That I can say for certain. But no, with that, that's I mean, we've, we've one of the shards this. that yeah, we're going to have to put together next time. Yeah, They're, they're mm. definitely links. Yeah. They mm. do have these motifs which tell the same story. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it doesn't seem as though one is a version of the other. No, that's what I was trying you know, to they get are parallels. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. They are parallel yeah. stories. <laughs> You've got Taliesin, who's right to now, you know, he's a very popular figure mm. with, you know, his feather cloak and yeah. all the rest of He's just the perfect image of the poet. Yeah. Mongol is equally so, but he's almost lost. I know, no one knows him. It's, so it, the it is... Irish Taliesin. Yeah. It's been virtually forgotten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's left for the next episode? Well, um, we've made a couple of references to the fragments. There's fragments of poetry that is about Mungon, which are usually as examples for poetic meter and mm. things like that. But they're worth looking at in their own right. Exactly, they? yeah, yeah. And then there's some which involve uh, Mungon having chats with Cullum Kill. So that's legitimisation. Yeah, that's a really interesting one. And then there's the story of how... Mungon's frenzy came to be related and this kind of goes back to that year when I mean, Mungon was, was out off. Dovlaka, exactly. Yeah. So they are they are only shards and again mm-hmm. there's the little references to his death and so on so we're going to kind of poke through that small vines tray and since he's, see what yeah, comes out. Since he's such, we might see if we can put a few bits of potsherd together yeah. and see if we can make up uh, one or two lost stories maybe. Yeah. Uh, and just get an overview. I think we, the reason we want to do another one is because he does seem to have once been a very important figure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yet, you know, we didn't really know anything about him until we started looking at these Yeah, stories. I mean, I've come across the name. And yeah. you talk about Lou. Yeah, or, and Finn. Finn. Yeah. Or Taliesin. Or Cormac McGarrett. Yeah, Mongol yeah. is definitely of the same status. Yeah, yeah. And there's not many people whose birth is heralded by Mananar. I know. Who's regarded as a saviour. Yeah. Who is so scary in the Imrov Brahm yeah. that the scribes are constantly going, oops, bother, we better find some Christian references. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, this sounds too much like Christ, but let's do something false. Yeah. So it's probably worth another one. I think so. Thank you for listening to Ogilaf Nanagus. Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody. For more information or to subscribe, please visit www.storyarchaeology.com. You can get in touch via email on the story archaeologists 
at gmail.com.